Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm now starting on 1 Timothy. I'm going to do the first 11 verses of the first chapter of 1 Timothy in this audio. I am going to call this section of Scripture Warning Against False Teachers. As you'll see, that's what is mainly on Paul's mind as he writes his epistle to first, his first epistle to Timothy. Now, let me give you a brief introduction. This introduction is going to be based on Daniel Wallace, the famous Dallas Seminary guy professor who is most famous for his Greek grammar, but he's got a good introduction on 1 Timothy. First of all, when was it written? Now, this depends on whether you believe that Paul was imprisoned once in Rome and then was executed, or do you believe he was imprisoned once, released, ministered for a couple of years, imprisoned again for a second in prison, and then executed. Now, this is one of these issues that New Testament scholars like to argue about. I'm going to briefly give you arguments on both sides, and I'll tell you the position I tentatively hold. The view that Paul was imprisoned only one time is held by only a few scholars. The majority of scholars hold that there were two imprisonments, including Wallace and also Gordon Fee, the famous professor at Regent College, who's famous for his hermeneutics work. And since I hate to be in a minority all the time, I'm in a minority so many times, it's so nice to be in a majority every once in a while, especially since I don't consider this issue of overwhelming importance. But we're going to take the second, the two-imprisonment view that Paul escaped, or not escaped, but he was released from prison in Rome and then went out and ministered a little bit. And while he was out of prison between his first and second imprisonments, he wrote the letters to first and second Timothy and Titus the so-called pastoral epistles, although Timothy's not really a pastor so much as he was an apostle, but that's what we call him. Now, this arguments, these arguments I'm going to use, we can include 2 Timothy in the arguments too because First and Second Timothy are usually considered a unit by most scholars. Okay, well, let's look at arguments for and against a two-imprisonment view. I'm going to give you four arguments favoring the one-imprisonment view. Argument number one. It was highly unlikely for Paul to be released from his first Roman detention. The argument goes like this. Why would the Romans let him loose? Well, against that, in my humble opinion, I think it was quite likely that Paul would be set free because the evidence against Paul was pitifully weak. He didn't start a riot in Jerusalem. That's what he was in jail for. Years before he started a riot in Jerusalem, whoop de doo I don't think the Romans really cared that much about keeping Paul in prison. In fact, he was probably under house arrest, as everybody says. Not like he was put into a dungeon. So I think it's quite likely he could have been released. Now, people who don't like the one imprisonment view, people like Gordon Fee who like the two imprisonment view, say that there's good evidence Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment. And they quote Paul's statements in Philippians. I'm going to look at this a little closer. Philippians 1, 18 through 19. What does it matter, Paul says, just that in every way, whether out of false motives of true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I rejoice, because I know this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, I know I'm going to be delivered out of this prison. Philippians 1, 24 through 26. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. In other words, I'm going to see you Philippians again. So that, well, that's enough. Philippians 2.24, I am convinced in the Lord that I myself will also come quickly. So Paul is saying, hey, I'm in prison now, writing this letter to the Philippians. I'm going to come see you quickly. Now, I understand the argument there, but here's a couple of points that cut against this Philippian evidence. First of all, the Philippian evidence is based on Paul's desires. 
He wants to come see them, but that doesn't necessarily mean he did come see them. He says, I am convinced and I know, but he could have been wrong. That doesn't affect the doctrine of inspiration of scriptures. It is true that Paul knew that he was going to come see the Philippians, but he could have been wrong about that knowledge. Remember, it's only the writings that are inspired, not Paul's thoughts or actions. So he could have been wrong about coming to see the Philippians. So I don't think that's a slam-duck argument for the two-imprisonment view. Also, if we look at Philippians 2, verse 17, we read this. Paul says this, But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Poured out as a drink offering? That sounds like blood being poured out, because that's what that wine sort of symbolized. You know, when, when the priest, Old Testament priest poured out the wine on the altar, and that sounds like blood being poured out. That sounds like Paul doesn't think he's going to survive his imprisonment. That sort of cuts against the idea that he is planning on seeing the Philippians. At least it, it holds out that Paul is, at least it indicates that Paul is holding out the possibility that he might not make it to see the Philippians. So he might have been saying, I hope to see you. I want to see you. I think I'm going to see you. My, I'm pretty sure I'm going to see you. I know I'm going to see you. I'm convinced I'm going to see you, but I might not. So I don't think that's slam-dunk evidence for the two-imprisonment view, even though I do hold that view. All right, so the first argument against the one-imprisonment view is that it's highly unlikely for Paul to be released from the first Roman detention, regardless, despite those Philippian verses. Second argument for the one-imprisonment view is if Paul was released from his first imprisonment, it was highly unlikely that he was going to be rearrested for his second imprisonment. Well, my answer to that is Paul's getting arrested all the time on trumped-up charges. Why is it so hard to postulate another trumped-up charge against Paul and a second imprisonment? Third argument in favor of the one-imprisonment view. Paul had intended to travel west from Rome, but the two-imprisonment view says that he traveled east after his release from Rome and went to Ephesus, Macedonia, and then to Crete. He probably went to Ephesus with Timothy, as Fee says, and Fee also says he, that Paul visited Crete with Titus. And then also he, he left Timothy in Ephesus and went to Macedonia, as he says right here, and as we'll see shortly as we get into the passage. All right, so the two-imprisonment view says Paul was planning to go, or actually did go east, but Paul had intended to travel west from Rome, not east. We read in Romans 15, 23, and 24. But now I no longer have any work to do in these regions, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you whenever I travel to Spain. For I hope to see you when I pass through and be assisted by you for my journey there, once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Well, Gordon Fee answers that very simply. He says, Paul changed his mind. He was planning on going to Rome. He wrote Romans uh, from Corinth in, on the third journey before he headed back to Rome. So this was long before his imprisonment. Before he was in prison, he planned to go on to Spain after he visited Rome. But he got caught, and he ended up in jail. So he didn't go to Rome. So that's not a really good argument for the one, one, prison, one imprisonment view, I don't think. All right, so that's the third argument for the one imprisonment view. Paul had intended to travel west from Rome, not east, but he ended up going east. Fourth argument for the one imprisonment view. Luke could hardly have been silent about a Pauline trip to the east after his release, because you know, the book of Acts says nothing about this trip to the east, the so-called fourth missionary journey, as people call it. My rejoinder to that is, well, Luke could have been finished writing. He says, what, what do we expect Luke to do, to hang around and watch Paul and wait for him to die? Oh, he's dead now. I can write my book. No. He had a good book, the book of Acts. He knew Paul was going to keep operating after he closed the book of Acts, and so he finished the book of Acts. And then Paul did some more stuff after he finished. So I don't think that's a good argument. So I've given you four arguments for the one imprisonment view, every one of which can be easily countered, maybe not with mathematical apodictic truth, 
but at least can be encountered. And let me give you the two arguments now favoring the two imprisonment view. First of all, it is extremely difficult to fit the pastoral epistles into the Acts framework. Acts ends after that imprisonment in Rome. And now, if you say that Paul did not make a journey to Macedonia, to Ephesus, Macedonia, and Crete after that first imprisonment, that means he had to have done it before the first imprisonment. And where do you put that? If you were to go through the book of Acts, where do you put it? I mean, Paul visited Crete, and where on the first journey would that, uh, excuse me, on the in the uh, three journeys would that happen? And Nicopolis, that's in Epirus, which is uh, western Greece now, right where Albania is, right around there. When did Paul go to Albania, Nicopolis? So it's hard to fit that into the Acts framework, which stops at the end of the first journey. So therefore, we postulate that it must there must have been two imprisonments and further work after the further missionary work after the first imprisonment. All right, enough of that. What date? Assuming the two imprisonment view, Wallace gives these dates. He says Paul was released from the first Roman imprisonment about eighty about eighty sixty one. And then he, he goes to Ephesus, Macedonia, and Crete, and other places, I guess, during that fourth missionary journey. He comes back, to he gets arrested and ends up in prison about 63 A.D., in, at which time he writes First and Second Timothy and Titus in 63 A.D., then he's killed in 64. That chronology is good as any. Remember, these chronologies are often, people differ by a year or two here and there. It doesn't really matter. It's the early 60s where Luke wrote well, Paul, excuse me, Paul wrote his letter to First Timothy. What was the occasion of his writing? What was the purpose of his writing? Well, the background was when Paul was released, he took Timothy with him to Ephesus. When he got to Ephesus, he encountered false teachers in the church. Now, again, remember, I'm assuming the two imprisonment view. So he leaves Timothy to deal with these heretics in Ephesus when he goes on to Macedonia. So the purpose of First Timothy is mainly to help Timothy deal with heretics, as Gordon Fee says. It is not a manual of church order, although there is a lot of ecclesiology in the book. So we can say the theme of 1 Timothy is godly leadership in the face of internal opposition. So we begin our exposition now, 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that it wasn't an option for Paul to be an apostle because Paul says he was an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior. I guess when Jesus shows in a big shows up in a big vision while you're going to persecute Christians and said, uh, Paul, why are you persecuting me? That's a command. That's more than just a suggestion. Notice that God is called God our Savior. We're used to calling Jesus our Savior, but the phrase God our Savior is everywhere in the scriptures, which is something that I wasn't really aware of till I looked at these verses in a unit together, 1 Timothy 2.3, this is good and it pleases God our Savior, 1 Timothy 4.10. In fact, we labor and strive for this because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of everyone. And that doesn't mean everyone individually, folks. It means every, it means Jew, Gentile, and everybody. Luke 1.47, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Titus 1.3, in his own time he has revealed his message in the proclamation that I was entrusted with by the command of God our Savior. Titus 2.10, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Jude 1.25, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's interesting. God is our Savior as well as Jesus. 
So Paul is an apostle by the command of God, our Savior, and also by the command of Christ Jesus, our hope. Remember, Jesus sort of commanded him in that vision on the road to Damascus. Our hope, our confident expectation of the future. To Timothy, my true son in the faith. Why does Paul call Timothy a son? Well, because Paul brought Timothy to salvation through Paul's ministry, according to Adam Clark. There is no place that's actually recorded anywhere, I don't believe. But when he calls him my son in the faith, my true son in the faith, uh, that probably means he, he converted him. Even if he didn't convert him, he raised him. He was with Paul from the second journey on to the very end of his life here. Second journey, third journey, fourth journey. Paul called other people his sons in the faith. He called the Corinthians that, 1 Corinthians 4.15. For you can have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you can't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Didn't call him his, their, his, Paul didn't call the Corinthians his son directly, but he called him their father. He called himself their father. Galatians 4.19. My children, Paul says to the Galatians, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. Now Paul finishes his salutation with grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is standard, grace, unmerited favor. Mercy is unmerited forgiveness. Grace is unmerited favor. And peace. We have peace from, with God. We are no longer his enemy. He is now our friend. We are reconciled with God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We move now to verses 3 and 4, 1 Timothy 1. Paul continues, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach a different doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Now, when Paul urges, to, I'm going to assume the two-imprisonment view here, so I'm assuming Paul has been released from prison and he's and he's gone to Ephesus with Timothy, and he's talking to Timothy, and he leaves Timothy behind in Ephesus to deal with the heretics there, and then Paul goes on to Macedonia alone. This all is according to Gordon Fee, who holds to the two-imprisonment view. Now, the problem here is that if Paul goes back to Ephesus with Timothy, he's told the Ephesians in Acts 20, 25 this, and now I know that none of you will ever see my face again. Everyone I went about preaching the kingdom to now, this was in Miletus at the end of the third journey as Paul was on his way back to Jerusalem with a poor collection for the saints in Jerusalem. He calls the Ephesian elders out to the seacoast town of Miletus so he can save some time. And he says, I'm never going to see you guys again. Well, that was what he thought at the time. But apparently, he was going to get to see the Ephesians again because he sees them again right here when he goes back to Ephesus, if the second imprisonment view is true. Paul, at the end of the third journey in Acts 20, 25, had no idea he was going to get back to Ephesus, but he did. So that must have been a glorious reunion. I guess it was about five or six years later. Well, let's see, the end of the third journey would have been 59. This is about, well, maybe maybe three or four years later, he got to see him again. So he tells Timothy to instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine. Now, Paul had prophesied against these people, these heretics, these wolves, these false teachers, on his previous visit to Ephesus, the one I just talked about, the end of his third journey. There, when he was talking to the Ephesian elders, he said in Acts 20, 29-30, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And men will rise up from your own number with deviant doctrines to lure the disciples into following them. So Paul was aware of what the Ephesian church was going to face, heresy. Now, Paul is to instruct these heretics not to pay attention to myths. And we'll see this theme all the way through 
the Pauline the pastoral epistles, First Timothy 4, 7, but have nothing to do with the irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. Titus 1, 14, and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and commands of men who reject the truth. So a lot of mythology going on, and it sounds like Jewish mythology, stories, bedtime stories, made up that Paul is, is preaching against here. And he says, he tells Timothy to teach these people not to pay attention to endless genealogies. Now, the Jews had a great interest in genealogies, just like Southern Americans do, you know. Oh, who's your second cousin? Who's your third cousin once removed? Chinese people even beat Southerners. They love genealogies. Well, the Jews did too. The purpose of these genealogies, according to John Gill, was to prove to what tribe they were in, to prove who was a priest and who was a Levite. And so Jews would be quite interested in that. But now the best comment on genealogies well, before I give you that, there are some options as to what kind of genealogies Paul was referring to here. Civil genealogies, Paul would not object to those, according to Jameson, Voss, and Brown, but I'm going to show you that Adam Clark disagrees with that strongly, and I think Clark is right. When I say civil genealogies, I mean genealogies of people, who's the son, the grandson of so-and-so and so-and-so. And Jameson, Voss, and Brown says Paul would not object to that. Well, we'll see about that. But Jameson Foster Brown has another idea of what these genealogies were. Genealogies of spirits and emanations. Because Gnostics were big on this. You know, who's the, where did this angel come from? Was he the son of this angel? Or was he emanated by this angel or that angel? And as we go up the seven levels of perfection until we get to the demiurge and all this nonsense. That's what Jameson Foster Brown's speculation is. But I think Adam Clark nails it here. I'm going to read you a long quote from him as to what these genealogies were. Quote, the Jews had scrupulously preserved their genealogical tables till the advent of Christ, and the evangelists had recourse to them and appealed to them in reference to our Lord's descent from the house of David, Matthew taking this genealogy in the descending, Luke in the ascending line. And whatever difficulties we may now find in these genealogies, they were certainly clear to the Jews, nor did the most determined enemies of the gospel attempt to raise one objection to it from the appeal which the evangelists had made to their own public and accredited tables. In other words, Matthew and, Mark had the, Matthew and Luke had the genealogies at their behest, at their command, and they quoted from them to prove where Jesus, that Jesus was of the tribe of David, and so forth. Uh, continue, continuing with Clark, All was then certain, but we are told that Herod destroyed the public registers. That's Herod the Great. He, being an Idumean from Edom, was jealous of the noble origin of the Jews, and that none might be able to reproach him with his descent, he ordered the, the genealogical tables, which were kept among the archives in the temple, to be burnt. This is from Eusebius's history. From this time, the Jews could refer to the genealogies only from memory or from those imperfect tables which had been preserved in private hands, and to make out any regular line from these must have been endless and uncertain. Now, I'm going to focus on this sentence here. It is probably to this that the apostle refers. I mean the endless and useless labor which the attempts to make out these genealogies must produce. The authentic tables being destroyed, the genealogies are now all lost, nor is there a Jew in the universe that can show from what tribe he is descended. But by golly, they were going to try. Clark goes on to say, There can therefore be no Messiah to come, as none could show. Let him have what other pretensions he might that he sprang from the house of David. Can't prove it, because the genealogies have been destroyed by Herod the Great. Clark continues, The Jews not, do not at present pretend to have any such tables, and far from being able to prove the Messiah from his descent, they are now obliged to say that, 
when the Messiah comes, he will restore the genealogies by the Holy Spirit that shall rest upon him. So the genealogies are gone, and Clark speculates that the Jews in Ephesus were trying to reconstruct these genealogies to prove who the Messiah was or where he was from, or maybe some of these false teachers were claiming they were the Messiah. I don't know, but that's what they were talking about. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. Empty speculation. You can't prove it one way or the other. Whenever you get to something you can't prove, that's a speculation. Now, a lot of times commentators, and I've done this many times in these audios, I have speculated about maybe this is what happened, this is what happened. But I, you try to keep it with reasonable speculations. And if I get spec, one speculation, okay, well, and then somebody else reads the facts a little differently, I'll give you another speculation. But it's still speculation. Whether it's true or not, only God knows. It's just interesting, but you can't use it for proof. But when you start talking about who so-and-so is the son of this person, no, this genealogy says he's the son of that person, that is totally empty speculation. It's a total waste of time. You need to use judgment in distinguishing between a reasonable speculation and an empty speculation. And there are lots of empty speculations. An empty speculation is one for which there is no evidence. A reasonable speculation is which there is some evidence, enough evidence to where you can make a reasonable, plausible, but not provable assertion. Now, speaking of specula- empty speculations, Paul mentions this a good bit in his letters to First and Second Timothy. First Timothy, in First and Second Timothy, First Timothy six four. He is conceited, understanding nothing, but has a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions. That's a sick interest. Second Timothy two fourteen. Remind them of these things, charging them before God not to fight about words. This is in no way profitable and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Second Timothy 2.23 But reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. Now, he didn't say reject disputes, because you can have theological disputes and discussions. I mean, Paul got in disputes. He got in dispute with Peter. That was not a foolish and ignorant dispute. That was a dispute about the very nature of the gospel itself. So there's some disputes you've got to get yourself into, and you cannot avoid. But foolish and ignorant disputes, stay away from that reminds me, I had a friend who was doing church on the computer because of the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, and his state's governor had opened up the state earlier than, in fact, earlier than any other state in the nation. And so one of the brothers in there decides to get, during that church meeting, starts ranting and raving about how the governor was a liar and the people were going to die and so forth, and somebody said, well, I don't think this is what we ought to be talking about in church, and besides, I disagree with you. Well, I don't disagree with you. I think he's right. And then uh, some, one of the uh, black brothers in the church told one of the white brothers, you just, you just support the governor because he's a Republican, as if all white people voted for Republicans, you know, and all black people vote for Democrats, which ain't so. And so then it degenerated into a free-for-all. Well, folks... That was empty speculation because nobody knows whether that governor opened up too soon or not. You have to wait till the COVID-19 statistics come in, if you can trust those statistics. So far, the statistics are pretty good, by the way. We'll see what happens. But my point is, whether the governor was right or whether he was wrong, that's not something you speculate about in church. Going on with empty speculations, 1 Timothy 1.6, that's coming up in a couple of verses. Some have deviated from these doctrines, true doctrines, and turned aside to fruitless discussion. Fruitless discussion is discussion that doesn't bear any fruit. Now, theological discussion can bear fruit. I mean, if an Armenian and a Calvinist want to discuss their different views pleasantly, well, then you learn that way. 
The best way in the world is to discuss opposing theology with people who hold different views from you. So either you sharpen up your own view or you reject some of your own view that you realize doesn't hold water. I do this all the time. I email somebody, what, I know that you hold this view. Could you tell me how you would handle this objection to it? There's nothing wrong with that. But that's fruitful discussion. But if you just go argue, like I had another guy, I know another guy that put up a, he's a scientist. He's a PhD. He's a real smart guy. And there's this woman putting up videos saying that the coronavirus, coronavirus is a hoax. And boy, my PhD scientist friend laid into her. And he did it scientifically and objectively and said she doesn't have her facts. And a lot of non sequiturs, a lot of post hoc propte fallacies and that kind of thing. You know, he did a pretty good job of it, I thought. He got, within a day, about 7,000 hits. People complaining about how he parted his hair, that he was ugly. Things like that, you know, things that had absolutely nothing to do with what he was talking about. That's fruitless discussion. Fruitful discussions go to the argument, not to the person making the argument. And they're, they're not ad hominem arguments. They're discussions that go to, is this proposition true or is it false? And if it is false or true, does it even matter? Is it a major issue or a minor issue? How important is it? Do I need to spend my time trying to examine to see whether it's true or not? Paul goes in verse 5 and 1 Timothy 1. Now the goal of our instruction as opposed to the heretic's instruction. The goal of our instruction, I'm assuming ours is the editorial we that Paul's talking about himself. Now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Yes, sir, boy, you get good Christian teaching, and it comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You can tell the difference between that and fruitless discussion in a minute. We go to 1 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7. Some have deviated from these. Deviated from what? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have deviated from those things and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. Now, I've already said that fruitless discussions are bad, as Paul says. Turning aside to fruitless discussion is bad. But fruitful discussions are perfectly okay and, in fact, necessary if you're going to grow any. Now, let's talk about, again, these empty speculations and foolish or fruitless discussions. Titus 1.10. This, again, is in the pastoral epistles. Titus 1.10. For there are also many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. So, again, Paul's he's fighting mainly Jewish and Jewish teaching that is affected with Gnosticism. 2 Timothy 2.23, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they breed quarrels. Titus 3.9, but avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 1 Timothy 6.20, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent, empty speech, and contradictions from the quote-unquote knowledge that falsely bears that name, knowledge in air quotes. Well, I wish I had examples of what these foolish genealogies and debates about angels and debates about genealogies. I wish I knew what they were. I wish I could see them. I could have a feel for it, but I guess I don't really need to know that. The point is, is they were fruitless. And then Paul says in verse 7, they, these, some that have deviated into fruitless discussion, they want to be teachers of the law. So not only are they worried about genealogies, they are wasting their time on rabbinic law. They want to be Teachers of the law, Adam Clark says they want to be, quote, to be reputed, cunning in solving knotty questions and enigmas, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, that kind of thing. 
So when they wanted to be teachers of the law, that shows it wasn't only genealogies they were wasting their time on, but also rabbinic law. For example, they were worrying about whether throwing a peach pit out of a bed on Sabbath was work, and therefore a violation of the Sabbath law against working on the Sabbath, or whether spitting into the dust is work because the spit creates a furrow in the dust, and a furrow means that somebody has plowed, and plowing is working on the Sabbath, and therefore you need to be executed. That kind of nonsense. Titus, remember, and here's another verse, Titus 1.14, and they may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject the truth. So Jewish myths was a big theme for in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. We go to verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. We'll finish up. But we know that the law is good, Paul says in verse 8, provided one uses it legitimately. Let me just stop there. This is a famous verse. This is used by reformers who want to say the law is good. The law is good. Well, of course the law is good, provided you use it legitimately. How do the reformers, the covenant theologians, want to use it? They want to slice it up into three parts, civil, ceremonial, and moral. They want to say we're free from the civil and ceremonial part, but the moral part is still with us, and so therefore we use the Mosaic Law, the moral parts of the Mosaic Law, and that means we're using it legitimately. We're not using the civil and ceremonial parts to put commands on the New Testament Christian. We're not trying to execute rebellious kids and saying you can't plant tomatoes and cucumbers in the same garden. That's how you use it legitimately. You slice it up, and you find the moral part of it, and then you apply the moral part to the New Testament Christian. Folks, that, that, in my humble opinion, that is not accurate. For one thing, it's so hard to slice up the moral law, the, the Mosaic law into three parts. I've got, I don't have them in my notes, but I remember hearing uh, a couple of reform professors at Reform Theological Seminary say, no, you can't do that. I've got the quotes in my New Covenant Theology video series. I've, I put them on PowerPoints because it impressed me so much because even reform people say it's hard to do that. It's impossible to do that, really. So what does Paul mean there? Provide one uses it legitimately. He goes on to say the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious. What's he talking about? He's talking about unbelieving Jews who believe in the law. The law is for Jews, but it's for unrighteous Jews, people who don't believe. It's not meant for a righteous person. And that would include Christians, would it not? The law is not meant for us. So, you know, you want to emphasize the law is good, fine. Emphasize verse 8. The law is good. But then put the condition on them, provided one uses it legitimately. How? Well, you use it with Jews to tell them that they're sinners. Verse 9, we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. We know the law is not meant for a righteous person. A Christian is a righteous person, so this law is not meant for us. QED, end of story. So covenant theologians are trying to put Mosaic law on top of us. Need to remember that it's the law of Christ that governs us now, not, the, not Moses. It's Jesus. And his commands are actually stricter than Moses. So don't call me an antinomian please. All right, Paul says in verse 9, we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. And what Paul is doing here, I'm sure, is he's covering himself from a misapprehension. He's just jumped all over these Jewish false teachers, and they're probably teaching legalism, law, 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 law. And he's probably trying to say, no, wait a minute, I'm not preaching against the law. I'm, I'm preaching against the misuse of the law. I think the law is good as long as you use it legitimately. And he's saying the law is not meant for a righteous person. It's not meant for the Christians in Ephesus. It's meant for all these unrighteous people. He mentions all the 
all the sins that the Old Testament law condemns. It's really interesting. This verse, which is used so much by covenant theologians, is it really is a strong argument for New Covenant theology. you got to use it legitimately, and it's not meant for a righteous person. I mean, what, what fits better? We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. Does that say we know that the moral and ceremonial law is not meant for a righteous person, but the moral law is? No, it doesn't say that. It just says we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person. End of story, folks. The purpose of the law is to expose sin. It is not to get us holy by following it and keeping it. A righteous person gets sanctified by the law of Christ and the Holy Spirit. The law does not make you holy. Romans 6.14, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Flip that around logically, for sin will rule over you because you are under law, but not under grace. You want to sin? Get under the law. Sin's not meant, the law is not meant for righteous people. It's just supposed to expose sin, show that God is holy, we're sinners, and we, need a, and we need Jesus. That's what the purpose is. Here's another scripture, Romans 7, 12, and 13. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Amen. Verse 13, therefore, did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good. The law is good. It produces death in Paul, which is bad. So that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. The purpose of the law is to show that we're sinners. Once we have been shown sinners and we accept Christ and become righteous people, Paul tells Timothy, the law is not meant for a righteous person. It's supposed to condemn sinners. It's not supposed to sanctify saved Christians. All right, Paul mentions some of the laws that are, some of the sins that are condemned by the Mosaic Law. He mentions homosexuals. Now, of course, in Western culture today, we, on our own motion, have decided that homosexuality is not a sin just because we don't think it is. Leviticus 18.22 says this, You are not to sleep with a man as with a woman. It is detestable. Oh, detestable. I'm sure by quoting that verse, some YouTube snowflake censor is going to probably try to or wherever this, or podcast censors are probably going to try to censor this thing and tell me I'm a homophobe or something. Well, if I'm a homophobe, so was Moses. Now, some people might object, well, that's the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus, the New Testament never condemns homosexuality. First Timothy 1.10 is in the New Testament. Now, you could argue that Paul is quoting all this Old Testament law for Old Testament people, and it doesn't apply to New Testament people, but then you're going to say, okay, so being unholy and irreverent, killing your father and mother is okay, murdering, kidnapping, that's lying, perjuring, that's okay, but homosexuality is all right. Why would Paul put that sin in the midst of all these other terrible sins unless it was also a terrible sin? Oh, you want to call Paul a homophobe? Well, I'm sure there are people out there that want to do that. Paul, in, this, in these verses, 8 through 11, 1 Timothy 1, he's contrasting sins with the righteous person. The law is not meant for a righteous person. And so an unrighteous person would commit these sins, just as the, which the Old Testament law had condemned. And because Paul adopts this as a, something that righteous people shouldn't do, we see that uh, this is, again, according to New Covenant theology, whenever the, a New Covenant writer incorporates the Old Testament law, then it becomes part of the New Testament law for Christians. So Christians are not supposed to be unholy, irreverent, killing fathers and murderers, ungodly, sinful, murdering people, sexually immoral, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and so forth. We're not supposed to do that because it's been incorporated into the New Covenant. Now, Paul also mentions kidnappers as a sin that Christians shouldn't do. The NIV has a slave trader, and that's what it was, I'm sure. 
Although kidnapping in general is a sin, obviously, but I think he was referring particularly to slave traders. The NIV translators think so. Now, this is a good note here for anti-Christians who moan and groan that Christianity didn't oppose slavery. Well, here's a verse that says that Christians were against the kidnapping of slaves. Now, they didn't. Uh, the early Christians didn't support slave revolts because that would have completely destroyed the church. I mean, it's impossible for the church to rid the world of all the evils that are in the world today. Well, let's just get rid of adultery. How much pain has come from adultery? Sure, right. The worst that we can do. What, what did Paul say? What, the, what have I got to do with judging outsiders? Let's judge the people that are in the church. It's hard enough to keep adultery out of the church, much less trying to, to reform society on, on the outside. People who don't love God and love their own sins. So, no, the church didn't abolish slavery. But let's face it, the Christian ethic is it percolated through Western society and western civilization pretty soon it was seen that slavery didn't quite fit in with the idea that we're that we're not jew nor greek slave nor free because in christ we're all born again christianity is very egalitarian when it comes to salvation but christianity does not say that there are no distinctions in economic status that they're not richer people opposed to unrich people poorer people middle class people there's different role distinctions between men and women there's role distinctions between parent and child but we're all equal in the sense that we're all sinners and we need to get saved. And there's only one way for all of us to get saved is through Jesus. I remember reading a biography of Andrew Jackson. He was dying. He got saved near the end of his life. And he had all of his slaves were around his bed. They were the slaves and, the, and also Jackson's family were getting ready to tell him goodbye because they knew he was dying. And Jackson was crying and he looked at his slaves and he said, well, I'm going to see you pretty soon because the slaves were these Christians. Slaves were apparently Christians too. And he said, "I'm going to see you soon." He says, "And there's not going to be any slavery when I see you again." <laughs> I get choked up when I think about that. Paul mentions all these terrible sins because apparently the false teachers were not only teaching false doctrine, but they were also practicing false morality or, or evil morality, immorality. So Paul is opposing that, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me, the glorious gospel, teaching based on anything else besides the glorious gospel is worthless. If you base your teaching on psychology, your personal experiences, your ego, social causes that you believe in, it's going to die. I remember I knew about a church in a town near me. It was a pretty successful church. It was going pretty good. And all of a sudden, the preacher decided he was going to start preaching psychology. Psychology, psychology, psychology every morning. And the church died. And he became a counselor. I don't know where he is now, the pastor. He's gone because he didn't stick to the gospel. The good news of salvation. We're sinners and Jesus relieves us of those sins by washing us white as snow. The glorious gospel of the blessed God. The blessed God means the happy God, which was entrusted to Paul, I say the happy God, Jameson Foster Brown says that blessed means the immortal and supremely happy God. He's happy with things. He's not upset by this virus. He's not upset by the corruption in the FBI. He's not upset about the fact that the whole world is locked down and people are going to die of starvation because of this stinking virus and the stupid responses to the virus that have occurred within the government of the country that I spent 23 years of my life in, the central kingdom, the mother country, the People's Republic of China. He's not upset by all that stuff. He's not upset that the government of China is persecuting the church and trying to obliterate it from the face of the earth. He doesn't like it, but he, he's, he's going to take care of it. 
It's all going to be wrapped up in, in supreme happiness and bliss. And he's going to be the blessed. He is the blessed God, immortal and supremely happy, because he knows the end from the beginning. And he knows that we do have a future. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm now finished with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In our next audio, we'll take up 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through the end of chapter 1. Paul says that Jesus came to save sinners. There's the gospel. None of this Jewish myth mythology, but to save sinners. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.